What's next? This is a question we're all having to ask and answer more frequently. I'm Jenny Blake, your host of the Pivot Podcast and author of Pivot, The Only Move That Matters is Your Next One. For show notes from this episode, visit pivotmethod.com slash podcast. If change is the only constant, then let's get better at it. Here we go. Hi, everybody. I am back with Dr. Michael J. Consuelos. We have been podcasting together since the pandemic really hit the States. And I'm just so grateful for Michael, who stepped up and said, hey, I have experience in pandemic response and coordinating the health system. And he's been on the front lines. He was even uh, in the army for six years doing emergency preparedness and uh, all kinds of things. He now runs his own consulting and advisory business, MJC Solutions. And so he's been a great co-pilot during this time. And you know, we said to each other, when the first conversation went well, and we said, let's just keep in touch. Let's see how things unfold. The last time we spoke was six days ago. I cannot even believe it, but so much has changed since then. We texted on Friday and said, what do you think? Is there enough? Is there enough here for another conversation? And by the time we're here today on Tuesday, March 24th, holy cow, it's a whole new world. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jenny. Looking forward to it once again. You encouraged me before we even hit record. First, we both arrived at this Zoom meeting and we like, took a big exhale. <laughs> okay. Oh, it's like we came skidding into the, you know, from the week, from the last six days, uh, yeah. seven since you and I did an episode solo. And then the next day was with Lindsay in the greater Seattle area. And yeah, wow. It's like we just started with this big exhale. And then you encouraged us to also do a check-in, which you've been yeah. doing in all your business meetings of, how the heck are you? I am, you know, I would say busy yet really energized. It sounds kind of strange uh, at this moment, but uh, it's just the hours go by so fast, Jenny, with all of the ingestion of in, of new information and then turning it around and trying to make it make it some somewhat purposeful for others that I'm working with. So there is that sort of uh, you know digestion of information and how can it be useful and then pushing it back out. So that's really really busy on the family front, which I think is important to mention. I think uh, one of the calls or podcasts we had, I mentioned that I went and rescued my daughter from University of Michigan, and she's now actually as we speak, she's on she's on in a class uh, remotely, so she's doing well and adjusting to the new environment and has done a great job in my mind. Uh, making sure she stays on schedule, and she actually in our kitchen has a has a piece of paper right in the middle of the kitchen that shows Maddie's schedule and every day and the day you know the hour by hour when she's in class, so we know we don't disturb her. Um, not as fancy as your door hangers that you've mentioned before, but it's helping everybody keep on schedule. And then tonight, uh, I'm doing what's what I'm calling Operation Escape from New York. So I'm going to. Uh, go get my son who works for ESPN and his girlfriend who works for a large financial firm whereby she can work now remotely for a period of time. He's been working remotely. So we are getting them out of New York. And then you can talk about your experience because New York has really become the epicenter for the United States for COVID-19. So I think our worry factor, our family worry factor is going to go way down once we have them in our warm embrace 
at the same time using social distancing <laughs> because they are coming from a hotspot. Um, so luckily we have enough room to keep them kind of separate for a period of time. But yeah, so busy. Uh, and, but now I, you know, my level of tension is going to go down once my son uh, is home and his girlfriend's here. Her parents are uh, in another state. They've traveled out of the New York City area to do the same thing. So we are trying to shelter in place. Well, I think we'll talk about that, why that's important, and limit social gatherings. And so, yeah, that's that's me today. How, how are you doing? Well, I love your operation, Escape from New York. If you want, you could just throw me, Michael, and the dog in the back seat. But I don't even oh. know. We're probably contagious by this point. <laughs> I mean... I hate to say it, but yeah, it's it's a real reality here in New York when you see how fast the cases are growing and yeah. there are people who live very close to us that we know have it and we're at the dog park, we're touching the dog, the fence to get in and out of the dog park. I mean, it's tough. Like it's, it's, I, we even someone, another person who has a dog, we have a lot of fun. Central Park allows you to go off leash, uh, humans and dogs before 9am. and he gave us a ride because it takes a little while to get there. And right. I just purposely didn't touch anything in his car. His daughter has asthma. So I didn't want to touch the seatbelt and the door handle. And just, there's so much conscious awareness. And then the closest grocery store to us is Whole Foods. So I went for the first time since all of this has been going down. And one, just the awareness of everything we touch, every package, every product, there's a moment of uncertainty and for me, my experience, I've shared these on a couple conversations and one yet to be re- released that I did with Sarah on being an empath and highly sensitive person during this time. I've had waves of sadness the last few days. I don't know if it's my own personal sadness, if it's the collective sadness. Seeing a place, a city like New York and a, even the Whole Foods where we are in Harlem and the streets that are normally so busy and so crowded and just seeing how vacant it all is and knowing that a lot of good can come from this. But I think for me too, how am I doing last week was just like all hands on deck. I mean, as the business owner and having clients and having the momentum launch, I just went all in to keep everything afloat. And so by the time the weekend hit, I was exhausted. I think I texted you as much. I was just dead, so tired, so wiped out. And so I'm noticing now in this week, it's all about energy management. And it's going to be having to be really conscious about what I say yes to, resting twice as much as I think I need, probably four times as much, and just kind of clearing my calendar a little bit and not letting my, what do they say? Not letting your mind write a check your body can't cash. So I do think that that's really important right now. Yeah. Um, wow. Uh <laughs> I guess self-disclosure here, there was a couple of days this past week and, um, that I've been sad too. So uh, I have family in Italy who right now is, is doing well, but luckily most of them are in Southern Italy, but I've spent part of my childhood in Italy. My mother's Italian. Um, uh, my son was there for a semester uh, studying and I, I, you know, it's, it's, it sads me to the core. I know that we're here in the United States and we are, battling this, but I, uh, I shared my, with my wife the other day, she was, she looked at me and she sort of said, what's going on? It's like, I'm just really sad. It just, um, I mean, I'm trying not to choke up here, but, uh, it's, you okay. know, perspective. Yeah. I mean, perspective is that the past couple of days, um, in the Italy, it's like two jumbo jet liners crashing every day. You know, I mm-hmm. think the numbers were, were numb 
to the numbers, the overall numbers at some point. But I think if you put them in the perspective of what it means to humanity to have to be a relatively small country and like every day a jumbo jetliner or two or you know maybe three will are crashing out of the sky. Um, I think it's going to have long-term effects. And and these are, so Italy's social system is so tied in with personal connection and the family and, and the, the sort of this more senior elderly folks in the family really are the, you know, in many ways there's a kind of a matriarchy, patriarchy kind of, not in a bad sense, but really the grandparents are really the hubs of the family wheel, the spokes, you know, all kind of back then. And, and all those people are going to be gone. Um, so yeah, so there's there is a sadness, but I think that uh, we you know this too will wash over us. Um, I, I think it's it's also at some level confirming in my mind why we need to do the things that we're doing today. I think that there's um, a lot of people who are questioning still, uh, and they're putting the economy versus human life. And I think if we don't do, there's a lot of great evidence from the scientific community. We can talk about a little bit about that. If we don't do the things we're doing right now, the impact is going to be unimaginable, completely making the world wars look like a walk in the park. So, so I don't want to get off the sadness piece and try to turn off shift here, but I think it's, I th- but I think it's okay to be sad. I think it's absolutely. And I, yeah. you must experience a layer of that as well, being so intricately tied into the healthcare system and the medical response. And I feel like you are getting information a little earlier than let's say somebody living in the middle of the country. So not only are you on the East coast, you even had family in New York and Italy, and you're part of the medical community. And connected into many of the frontline responders. So one, of course you're sad and feeling it. And there's such a, there's such an adrenaline rush of what can I do? How can I help? And then I feel that it's equally matched by the waves of reality and sadness when you realize the magnitude of it all. Um, I'm, I'm curious if you could share with us actually, what are you seeing, hearing on the front lines? I think at this point, many of us do know the basics, yeah. you know, wash yeah. your hands, social distancing. There was a guy kind of reminded me what you just said. There was a guy on the daily today, the New York times, the daily podcast. He was angry. He was just saying, we are bungling this response. We are screwing this up. We must yeah. do better. And I wonder what your thoughts are from your vantage point. Uh, well, I think it's, there's uneven application of scientific uh, public health measures and that and i can see where he, i do get angry also so amongst that sadness there is anger that and 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 what you said earlier jenny is that it's that driving the purpose of taking that and, and what can i what, what can i do so so i'm on almost daily calls with hospitals uh large organizations uh federal officials uh and you know just for the the new jersey new york city metro area the infection rates are four to five times higher at this point than the rest of the country which at some level makes sense because of uh tra- mass transportation and um, large corporations and just the way people live in that area but that's basically what italy and other countries were facing too and the current um instruction by Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio seem in some using one lens. See, is this because the 
for some reason people are not believing this as to be a true threat seems like a huge uh, inconvenient and economic uh, issue. Whereas the rest of us in the medical community are saying, yes, please do more of that. And, and I'm concerned for, and I, and I communicate regularly with friends and family who are in the healthcare business and trying to be supportive of what, where I can to let them know that people are, are behind them. So that's, so that's, so I guess answering your question a little bit there. So for things, I guess I want to just want to clarify just maybe I could spend a few minutes talking about why the social distancing and shelter in place is an important piece. Can I do that just for a couple of minutes? Please do. Yeah. So the science behind that, so I'm going to get a little techie here. So as you look at how viruses and other infections replicate, and you'll see this, this R number reproduction rate uh, number bandied around and people throw it out there in papers. It's really is how many, it's what's important is how many people will get infected by by one case. So if I have COVID-19, what are the factors for me or what is the potential for me to spread it to other people, if that makes sense, right? So as you look at different types of, of infections, the most infectious thing that we know is the, is the measles virus. And it is, um, it's our factor is 12 to 18. That means that one person, because it, basically it's airborne and the the particles are so small that they float around in the room and land on things and, and you could infect some. And that's why we have seen these cases of measles pop up in areas where vaccine rates are so low and you go, wow, how could one person infect a couple hundred people? Well, because the R factor is almost 20 for that. It's 12 to 18, depending on the study, right? So then you look at polio, right? So polio, which has been eradicated for basically across most of the globe, it's, um, it's our factor is five to seven. And there was a bunch of other things that we have basically through important vaccinations have dropped. That's how we do things. You know, like what's our infections that causes, causes harm with COVID-19. It is uh, not that high, thankfully, but it's somewhere in the two to three range. That means every person. So one person uh, can infect at least two or three other people on average. So maybe there's some super infectors out there that have higher levels and some people who are lower, but anyway, the math behind that is, Basically, you know, take one person, you multiply that by two, and then those two people then infect two more people. Then you know you start doing that. It's sort of like this exponential growth starts to happen. So one person in a month could that is not uh, self quarantine or is uh, that infected other people is actually responsible for two to three hundred other people being infected. So let me just let that sink in, right? So one person who didn't wash their hands, who had the illness, who didn't do what they're supposed to do, um, could eventually infect hundreds of people. Then there's another factor, which is if one of those people who they infect then also does what they're supposed to do, they break that chain of infection and that number starts to drop, right? So if you infect two people, but one of them did a good job and has been washing their hands and is doing social isolation and social distancing, you break that sort of chain, that branching pattern that starts to appear from that one person. That's why what we're doing is so important because we don't have a treatment. I could talk about that in a couple of minutes. We don't have a vaccine. So all those other things, measles, polio, mumps, pertussis, uh, we all have vaccines for those. So we break that chain of transmission very easily in the population. If there's an outbreak, we just vaccinate people. In this case, there is no vaccination. So it's allowed to run rampant across the population as it did in Italy, who didn't do enough 
early enough, or just you know, they hadn't seen this early enough, and that's why we have all those deaths in Italy. Other countries, such as China, Singapore, have done uh, great, and what in our eyes may mean may look like draconian measures. Jenny, they stopped that reproduction rate. They dropped it right because they were able to not only um, uh, stop people from uh, from contacting each other, but also they had enough tests so that when they found a case, they could do some tracing and contact those people and say, hey, you've been potentially infected, you need to self-quarantine, or you need to take these appropriate measures. So the contact tracing is an also piece that's very important. That's why the medical community has been really talking a lot about the testing. And that's why testing is important, not just to cohort patients in hospitals, allow the medical community to know who has it, who doesn't, but if you're able to do some contact tracing through the community, you can potentially stop that branching pounder, that 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 multiplication effect. Okay, I have anyway, that's three. a mouthful of stuff. No, it's good. I have three <laughs> follow up questions. Yeah, yeah, you go can ahead. address yeah, go, go. in any yeah, order. Yeah, please. No, no, go ahead. Yeah. There's. Um, I'd love to hear what you're hearing around vaccines and yeah. progress or not there. Yeah. Contact tracing. I saw that South Korea was very successful by tracking yeah. people's cell phone data and then backtracking and then oh, yeah. uh, mass texting to anyone they were in their region. But then right. that brings up some surveillance capitalism concerns. And then right. number three, uh, you had just mentioned, oh, what was the last thing you said? I have, I'm calling it like coronavirus brain. Uh, oh, testing. Should yeah everyone get tested? I saw, I yeah. forget the name of the kit, but a new kit released today that it was like, yeah. um, you to see like direct to consumer yep. testing yep. kit. It's a little over a hundred dollars. Yeah. So, Do you think everyone should take that? So, okay. so any so order start, on those three start. things? Okay. I already forgot the first, I already forgot the first question. <laughs> Vaccine, <laughs> yeah, contact okay, tracing so, and yeah, yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. This folks, this is why I enjoy having conversations with Jenny Blake. She's help keeps my brain in order here. So, all right. So, so vaccines. Okay. So, uh, this isn't an, an RNA virus and I don't need to go into details why that's important other than the fact that it's, that it is a difficult vaccine to make, to make for RNA viruses. And so for a previous episode, we talked about the SARS and the MERS respiratory uh, viruses that are also, uh, they're basically cousins of COVID-19. Both of those vaccines uh, stopped in phase one trials. And what and what phase one trials is, so vaccines are made like, I mean, I'm gonna, sorry folks, I'm gonna go, I, it's important for me to, to explain this. So as you develop a vaccine, you have to figure out, uh, take parts of whatever the organism is, the virus or bacteria, and then you basically, uh, eat, there's a couple of ways of doing this, but you're basically trying to form antibodies or something that will elicit an antibody response in a human body, right? So you start off with uh, things in little uh, tubes and uh, you start then induce a little bit of some animal testing to make sure that, you know, obviously you don't want to kill people with this right away. So there's, I'm sorry, folks who don't believe in animal testing, but that's the safest way for us humans to do this. And then you move to phase one, which is you give it to 40 or 50 people at one time. So right now, as I understand it, we are in phase one testing. There's 40 some people who've uh, have the, the current vaccine for COVID-19. And what they do is you, first of all, number one, safety, right? So you don't want to give someone who put, gives them potentially a worse problem than you're trying to cure. Secondly, you want to see if the body makes an appropriate response to the vaccine. There's ways of testing the antibodies that, yep, you saw COVID-19 in this vaccine and your body is appropriately responding to it 
not just in a safe manner, but also in a manner in which you're producing the correct antibodies that will give you some sort of immunity. Great. That's And is it true one. that the malaria vaccine is related to this somehow? Uh, I don't know that. That's a good question. I don't know. There is the malaria treatment, which is chloroquine. Oh, maybe, maybe. that's what I was hearing. Yeah. Something yeah, about maybe. malaria. Yeah, that's the chloroquine, we could, which, which we can talk about. But so, okay. Put so a pin in I, it. I, hate, I hate going into this deep detail, but you know, hey, people are learning, right? So uh, if they're still here, they're in the JBMC podcast club. <laughs> exactly. So right, this exactly. is how it's going to go we'll right now. <laughs> we're going to give them a certificate, right? A certificate I like it. Yeah. Great. So, so we are in phase, so people, we are in phase one, which is early. Lots of vaccines, including the MERS and the SARS vaccines. Again, these are coronaviruses. We didn't get past for a couple of different reasons. We didn't get past phase one. Okay. So if we get through phase one, then what you do is you go to phase two and phase two is hundreds of people. You're doing the same thing. And now you're, you're spreading it out across age groups, uh, demographics. You just, you're just basically expanding the number of people that you can make sure this is working. That's phase two. Then there's phase three, which where you're there in the, in the thousands of people, and then, then you're, um, you know, there's other phases, phase four, and then you start doing studies to make sure that actually uh, it works at, at, at scale, again, because many times there may be a vaccine that there may be unintended consequences. So we may fast track this through all those phases and move right to you know, implementation, but we probably need to go through at least phase one, phase two, if not phase three, to make sure this number one, safety reasons, and two, that is a vaccine that works because what you don't want to do is you don't want to provide a vaccine thinking that you are now uh, immune and you go out and not do the things we're doing currently and then you get infected, right? That's not the right way. So there's another way, there's an old, old way of making vaccines. So this is back in the, in the cowpox, smallpox. Uh, you can actually infect people with the vaccine um, and then you can draw up their serum and, and basically concentrate it. And what you're doing is you're actually giving the antibodies from the people who already you've had the, the disease, I'm giving a shortcut here, but then you can use it as a treatment for people or give people as a, as a vaccination to other people. That's sort of a long, I'm kind of blurring that line a little bit. So that there's also the testing around that. And you may be hearing about that, but those, that's a different process and it can't be done at scale because you're literally drawing people's blood, separating the serum and you're, and you're separating the antibodies uh, and then giving it to people. So that's a different process um, and really shouldn't be able to use at scale. So that's a vaccine. So folks, we are early in this. I think if, if, and there is the possibility because it, again, it's an RNA strain that it, which is difficult and it mutates. That's the other thing I need to mention is that the other reason to stop the spread across populations, large populations is RNA viruses are easily mutated. So every time you mutate a virus, it's possible that whatever vaccine or treatment you have come up with won't work. And that's why influenza vaccine, which is not an RNA virus, it's a DNA virus, um, every year we have to give you a new type of a vaccine because as it goes around the world, it replicates so much that there's natural uh, drifts uh, and shifts in the uh, DNA. And so you end up with a different vaccine, or I'm sorry, different influenza virus every year. So that's reason number like 45, but a very important reason not to uh, have large populations get infected with COVID is that there's, you're increasing the possibility of a mutated strain that whatever vaccine or treatment you have uh, developed, it won't be effective for the people who are infected with that strain. So, so is, there, is there a possibility that we could have a different coronavirus strain. Yes. I mean, I know that's why we're calling it COVID-19 because yeah. this is the unique strain, but is it possible that this thing 
replicates like crazy. It's doing it's and doing mutates. It, it's doing it now. It's 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 happening as we speak. It's not something that people talk a lot about, and I don't want to be a, an alarmist by any stretch of imagination. But there is in the scientific community. This is the conversations. You know, so you asked me about what what is being talked about in the medical community. This this is one of the concerns. Not just to we've talked about flattening the curve. Uh, it, but this is one of the other concerns about not flattening the curve is that you aren't able to, that you're putting it at whatever vaccine you're, you're developing at some risk. It may not be high, but it, there is some risk that a, that a different, more virulent uh, COVID-19, COVID-20, whatever the number is, uh, pops up. So there are different strains. So the, the other question you had for me, uh, Jenny, There was, was there? contact tracing as yeah. a method to flatten the curve. Yeah. Why haven't we done a podcast? It should just be called Flatten the Curve. Flatten Everyone the curve. makes fun of that phrase now. Flatten but, the cur- yeah, 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 Flatten the Curve. Um, yes. But yeah, so contact the- tracing and then yeah. self-testing, if that's yeah. worth people doing, even if, you know, I sneezed yeah. yesterday. Should I self-test? No. I had a sniffling. My, my throat is a little sore. Should I self-test? You know what yeah. I mean? So what do yeah, you no, recommend no. on that front? Yeah, the contact tracing is a, literally, I think it's a 200-year-old process to track uh, diseases across countries. So this is not anything new. So this is what what people in public health or in that. But they are using cell phone data now. Exactly like right. Yeah, the location camp- tracking, crazy yeah, right. amounts of data. Right, right, exactly. So countries who can do that are obviously have done that, and we've seen the effects. Right. So I don't think, uh, my opinion is that here in the United States, we're not going to get to that point. But we do contact tracing for other diseases. So all right. Um, Know, kids, close your ears. Uh, so, for sexually transmitted diseases, there's actually these are there's a group of reportable diseases. So we do that. So actually, if someone is contracts a sexually transmitted disease, it is reported to the state, and then what the physicians in most cases will do is contact that person and ask who else they've been in contact with, and then you do contact tracing because you want to stamp out sexually transmitted diseases and HIV and AIDS and those things, that's a little bit different. There's a lot more security and and patient protection around that piece. But for uh, a lot of things like measles outbreaks, when you heard measles being, uh, I think it was uh, Disney World or Disneyland, you know, right, there was an outbreak. They did contact tracing and basically they figured out who they stayed with, who they went, where they traveled, and they started alerting people. Uh, That's, I think right now we're, we're kind of beyond that for, um, COVID-19. So I, I think that that is, is still something that can be done at some levels. And I think it is being done in certain cases. The problem is that at some point, it's going to become what we call endemic, which is part of the natural viral uh, load out there in the community, which is it doesn't work anymore because basically either everybody has it, has had it, or is going to get it. So contact tracing doesn't, doesn't really help because everyone's at risk. Um. So the testing question is a great question. At this point in time, we do not have enough tests to test everybody in, in the United States. I just got off a call with uh, federal folks where they were, you know, again, trying to uh, instruct people to limit the testing to patients who are in hospitals. As you can imagine, that's important for that patient to know that they have COVID-19. It's important for uh, we've for the healthcare providers to know the patient has it, and also for the use of PPE, the famous uh, personal protective equipment. So if a patient does not have COVID-19, let's say has another illness or another type of pneumonia, we can save on PPE because we need to use it for other patients. So that is the, the, the choke point right now for us is that in the inpatient areas, 
Will there be a time we can start testing more people? I think there probably will be. But at this point in time, because of so few tests and the turnaround time is also an issue. So if it takes you two or three days to be tested, if Jenny Blake tests herself, tests herself, and we say, okay, don't go out in public until we give you a result. Right now it's taking two, three days minimum. And there's, and in some cases, five to seven days to get that result because we are prioritizing the inpatient uh, tests. You, what are you going to do? You're going to stay inside forever? Um, so it's not practical at this point in time, unfortunately. But I think as we uh, start having more and more tests produced, and you mentioned the the self-administered nasal swab, so that's not the one that you do a, a deep nas- a swab in your sinuses, but rather one, or nasal passages, but one just at the tip of your nose, that there's some good data that that's going to be helpful. And I think that will probably be released most likely to outpatient areas and screening centers, and maybe not to the general public at this point in time. So the answer is not yet. Yeah, because I it's it's interesting. I saw Everly Well is the name of the company I saw yes. where they were saying, yeah. okay, as of Monday, you can buy a kit. And now I see updated 322 because, of course, everything changes one day to the next. It says update with recent briefings from the White House, dot, 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 everything you just said, Michael, that we need to prioritize health care yeah. companies and workers on the front lines. So because I was thinking, yeah, that is crazy that already we'd be able to have consumers basically just requesting kits, but even they have pivoted and are saying, no, if we need to get it to the people who need it most. And can you foresee a time where, because it also doesn't seem safe to go in to any facility to get tested if you think you have it. And yet at some point there would be value in knowing Yeah. It's just so crazy that you could be a carrier for two weeks with no symptoms. Yeah. I saw one thing that said, if you can't smell your coffee, that could be an early marker. Like if you can't smell certain things. There's growing data. Thank you for bringing that up. There's growing information. I don't call it data yet. Information that you get anosmia. That's, I know that you like new words. So anosmia is basically the inability to smell. Um, So yeah, there's some, some, uh, some evidence that that may be happening. I, I wouldn't use that as your, marker. But you brought up a good point about uh, keeping people away from uh, hospitals and healthcare areas and uh, and reducing risk. So maybe we could pivot a little bit around the sort of what's happening in, in telemedicine or telehealth. Uh, yeah, which, I'd actually, uh, telehealth would be great. And at some point, MJC, we're going to yes. have to address what do you do if you think you have it? And oh, yeah. I'm asking that because I'm in New York and I watch that bubble grow every day. But yeah. do you obviously you stay home. Do you contact yeah. people? Do you, what do you do? Do you, do you tell a medical, do you call a phone yeah. number? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So that's, those are all great questions. So I think number one, if, if you think you have it, you need to do the social isolation, self-quarantine, hand washing and washing, washing of surfaces that you touch doorknobs, uh, tabletops, whatever. So, and if you're living with someone, uh, it probably is advisable again to continue that six foot kind of radius and, and not have close contact uh, little things like, you know, put away your own dishes, clean on your own dishes, clean your own bathroom. If you have more than one, one bathroom to use, try to really limit that contact. You think you have it right. So that's, that is important. Uh, contacting your medical provider uh, at this point in time, what they are doing is going to, ha- they're going to help you with that decision of whether or not you have it. So a lot of 
hospitals, physicians, there is uh, screening questions that you, they'll answer and then they'll give you some opinion at some level. I think actually, I think uh, I just got an email, I think from, from Apple the other day that now you can like tell Siri to ask you questions for screening for COVID. Uh, I think Google, I think a lot of online folks have, are putting these screening questions. So use those. The CDC has those questions also online. So I think asking you those questions and then there's a lot of them will then follow up with some sort of this is what you should be doing in case you have it. If you're basically having a cold, if you think you have it, you've been exposed, you think, and you think you basically have a cold, you don't need to go see anyone. If you are a person of high risk, so let's say age over, at this point in time, 50 and under looks like you're going to probably going to do okay, but not 100%. 15 over, definitely people in their 70s and 80s are at high, high risk. Those folks probably, even though I'm saying you, if you feel okay, you probably should contact your medical provider because you're at high risk. If you have medical conditions, you probably should contact your medical provider. As a medical provider myself, I would rather know that you think you have it. We may not do anything. Again, we'll use telehealth to have an interaction but I would rather know in advance and give you some instructions of reasons to, to contact the medical facility as opposed to you wandering into your local hospital uh, trying to seek help. It's easier for us to help you navigate the system if it's possible. But I think that, you know, we haven't talked about New York yet really specifically because I've been on a, a long discussion, but as you know, they're putting up temporary hospital at the convention center uh, there in New York City. I think there are organizations who are prepared for large waves of patients, but whatever you can do not to overwhelm the medical system would be greatly appreciated. So in that case, it seems that if someone were to get symptoms, you could call. It's so crazy. I just switched health insurance. I don't even have a doctor, like a, a designated person, let's say, but that there's people doing telemedicine. Ostensibly, there's someone you could call. Yeah. <clears throat> she coughs as she... Uh, virtually waves across the screen, but then, uh, <laughs> then, at, at what point do you just see if it passes versus yeah. oh maybe I need to get treated or I do need yeah. to one? And I'm curious to hear your take on pop up hospitals like convention centers and even cruise ships. Oh, okay. Well, so the pop up hospital. Luckily, the what, what you're having going on in New York City is a well coordinated FEMA. So the federal you know, emergency uh, management agency coordinating with the city and the state. So a federal, state, local government, completely coordinated event. That's great. So there's pallets of medical equipment. As I understand it, they're, built, they're standing up a 1,000-bed hospital, and they're smartly, in my opinion, dividing up into four. So it's actually 250 independent within you know, one roof. So that, it's, that's just easier from operations to manage smaller populations of flow of supplies and people and that kind of stuff. And it's being staffed by uh, folks in the medical community, not directly in New York City. So you're bringing workforce. You're bringing supplies, and that luckily you're doing a what we call a hardened structure. So it's it's it can weather the 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 weather, right? It's not just a tent. It's not a pop up in the sense of a pop up that you put in your in your uh, backyard. And so it has a lot of great element that's coordinated. Uh, and individual organizations all over the country are doing some version of that at the local or regional level, which is great. So those things that I just described are important for coordination of, of care, tracking uh, contacts, all the things we've talk, discussed. And those, I have great confidence that those will go as well as they possibly could. Is, is it the same as your local hospital? 
Well, it's not because it's not a local hospital, uh, but at least the organization uh, is ready for you. So I have confidence about that. The cruise ship thing, I think, is a is an interesting idea, and I think it's great for us to flex expansion of of alternate sites of care. My understanding is those would be for people who don't have COVID nineteen. Is what I'm understanding. So, so what do you do? What do you do with patients who don't have COVID nineteen that still need care? Uh, they're dehydrated, or they may have pneumonia, or delivering whatever. a baby. They're having a baby, right? Like you don't want them in the hospital, Crazy. right? So, right. right. So, the the one issue I have with that, not an issue, I shouldn't say an issue, but I have questions about that, and I've shared it with other people. Is where is the workforce coming from to to stand those up? So the military and the and there is a whole volunteer emergency medical uh, system that is being activated on a regular basis. I'm part of that. I get that. I get a daily email for the Pennsylvania uh, portion of that to see if I'm available. That's being coordinated that way. I don't know if there's going to be enough people around to number one staff those. And and so that's that's just a concern. I'm not saying it's not a bad idea. Just I, I don't know how that plan is being rolled out. Then there's the personal protection equipment, the PPE. If it's going to all these focused areas of COVID-19, it doesn't mean that you don't need PPE for those other patients. There's other diseases. There still is the flu. There still is people with tuberculosis. Those those diseases have not gone away because it, they've decided, you know, take a vacation. COVID-19 is taking over the world. They're still, they still exist. Like you said, giving you know birth to babies. I'm not sure that'll happen on ships, but, but you're right. There's other things that need to be happening. And then there's supply, other supply things that concern me even more, which is, for example, how do you deliver oxygen tanks to a, a large ship? And what was there enough supply out there? So I'm not saying that that's not a good idea. I think the logistics of that is still needs to be drawn up. I do know that federal authorities and state authorities and the folks at the uh, Assistant Secretary for Preparedness are working all through that. So I have confidence that that's all being worked out. I just think it's uh, premature to say that's going to be the, our, uh, the saving grace for our country today if we have other maybe levers to, to pull. Let me, so can I, there's one more thing about the curve that we have not talked about publicly in, in the medical, or I'm sorry, in the lay press, but I think it may be important for your listeners um, Please to know share. about. Yeah, yes. thank you. So flattening the curve is not just about COVID-19s, ladies and gentlemen. It's about other diseases. When you overwhelm the medical system and your ICU is your intensive care unit is filled with COVID-19 patients and your emergency department is filled with COVID-19 patients. And, and unfortunately someone in your community has, let's say a heart attack, which is still happening, right? How, when it used to take five or 10 minutes to get that ambulance out to that person and bring them in to the emergency department and have them go through a cardiac procedure to stent open, to open up their, uh, their arteries around their heart. It's a life-saving procedure that it clearly the, it, it's minutes matter in that scenario. What happens in this scenario when the ambulances are overwhelmed, the emergency departments are filled and everyone's all hands on deck for COVID-19. So there is part of the reason to flatten that curve is not just to help the medical system take care of COVID-19 is to take care of everyone else who's going to be sick. There are still people who need cancer care, who are going to have heart attacks, who are going to have babies. Not all of it has to be bad news. And we want to make sure that they get their care appropriately and and efficiently in a a way that's safe to them. So I know it's an inconvenience to be living at home and working from home and not not be able to, to do the things we all enjoy, 
but they're to, but to stay. And again, the other question that you mentioned earlier is, do I go to, you know, do I seek medical care? That's another reason. The less we impact medical care day to day, you're making room and capacity for the health system to absorb, not just COVID-19, but the people who actually need care today. And they're in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, unfortunately. So I don't know. So thank you for sharing I a lot of talking. This. I'm doing too much talking. Hey, you're my guest expert. You know, oh, that's the point. I, yeah. I, I that's know, why we're I paying know. you the big bucks. <laughs> oh yes. And <laughs> of zero and I got, dollars for the uh, yeah, podcast. Yeah, and, and I got the hint of who the doctor is that you're going to call when you need. So I got that. Okay, right. So, right. I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's great. Great folks. <laughs> no, don't worry. I will overwhelm your, oh, your well, telemedicine you know, line. Yeah. You, you know, you can tell me. So, yeah. So uh, well, this is really helpful. I, I so appreciate your perspective and you've been a touchstone for at least me and maybe a certain percentage of Pivot Podcast listeners. Some of the news and even some medical practitioners are so aggressive, it's hard to listen to. <laughs> and you have a really rational, gentle sort of approach to conveying this important information. And I also think it's interesting that you happen to, at the moment, be straddling the medical community and business and leadership. And I've, I've seen you, you've been doing a lot of webinars, putting a lot of content out there. Given your unique vantage point on all this, I know you mentioned the role of scenario planning for the next three to six months. Some of us have been saying, oh yeah, weeks, could be three months. Wow. Where everything is stopped and we don't leave the house. Yeah. At this point, do you think it could be longer? A. And then B, what are you recommending to businesses for scenario planning? Yeah, scenario planning is not so. I'll answer. So I don't think we're going to be. I think if we do the right thing, Jenny, and I'm really hoping that the federal, state, and local officials continue the the social isolation, shelter in place, because the the, the that will give us time to get a potential vaccine. It'll give us time to get to work out whether or not certain medications are truly effective against COVID-19. It buys us time. And, the, and one of the analogies that I've heard is, you know, we're going into battle. And uh, do you want to go into battle with what you have at hand now? Or would you like time to prepare? And what flattening that curve does, it allows us to prepare more and more. Eventually, we're going to have to figure out the treatment and vaccination issue around COVID-19. That wraps up part one of the latest installment with my pandemic podcast co-host, as weird as that is to say, Dr. Michael J. Consuelos. Make sure you're subscribed to the Pivot Podcast so that you get the next part of this conversation where we shift to talk about business impact and contingency planning, as well as journaling, even from a business perspective. And what we've both learned personally and professionally, even just in the last seven days. For those of you who are following this pandemic series, and even might want to go to these episodes directly, or share them with a friend, which I would be so grateful if you were to do, you can go to pivotmethod.com slash podcast archive. Stay tuned for part two of my conversation with Michael coming up. Thank you all so much for being here and for listening. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Pivot Podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips and templates by signing up for Pivot List, a curated twice monthly newsletter where I share the inside scoop on what I'm reading, watching, listening to, 
and the latest tools I'm geeking out on. Sign up at pivotmethod.com slash pivotlist. Get show notes from this episode at pivotmethod.com slash podcast. And connect with me on Twitter at Jenny underscore Blake. Remember, build first, then your courage will follow. Hasn't it always?